Hey everybody, Father John Ricardo from Acts 29, and I just want to make a, a quick introduction to these homilies that uh, we're airing right now. These were originally proclaimed a year ago, uh, Holy Week 2019, and though they're a year old, they seem even more relevant right now given the situation that we find ourselves in, not just in the country, but in fact in the world as we continue to deal with this pandemic the theme a year ago was reflecting on the extraordinary things that God has done for us in the person of his son and how those things, those real moments in history, namely Jesus's death and his resurrection, and then his sending us out into the world to recreate the world or to be agents of recreation until he gloriously returns, only seem more significant now. Given obviously the number of people who are sick and who are struggling because of the virus, those who are anxious about loved ones who are sick, the many men and women who are putting themselves on the front lines each and every day, whether it's in healthcare or in other ways of being first responders, those who go to work so that we can have the things that we need to live our daily lives, and the rest of us who are just simply wondering, where is God in all of this? All of those things are addressed in these three, sh uh, I was going to say short, but they're not short homilies. So again, even though they're recorded from a year ago, we pray that the Word of God, uh, which is the substance and the foundation of everything that's being reflected upon, will find room in our hearts to calm our fears and anxieties and to fill us with unshakable confidence in Jesus, who is not just kind or good or merciful, but who is risen and who is Lord and who holds our lives in his hands. God bless you all. With the whole assembly present, it shall be slaughtered in the evening twilight, pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. By his stripes, we have been healed. God has indeed provided. Behold the Lamb. As I mentioned last night, today is the only day in the year where it is strictly forbidden to celebrate Mass. And yet today isn't some sort of funeral. We're not supposed to pretend that Jesus hasn't risen. If this was the end, not only would we not be here right now, but again, almost assuredly, nobody on the earth would know the name of Jesus. Well, today is Good Friday, and it's actually technically what the church calls the celebration of the Lord's Passion. I've mentioned often over the last 12 years that a, a dear friend of mine, a priest, he's passed away now, used to always say that in his mind he thinks every priest has one homily. I wholeheartedly agree. Father Dave 
has one homily. It's whatever Fulton Sheen said on the topic. I have one homily too. It's the cross. Actually, it's the crucifix. And the passionate love of God, which is found there. The first memory of my life, the oldest memory I have is of the crucifix that hung in the church in the parish where I grew up. And it has profoundly marked my whole life. Whenever I walk into a church, I head immediately for the Blessed Sacrament, and then immediately after that, I try to find the crucifix, and I just sit, stand, or kneel in front of it. The cross is magnetic for me. I pray that our cross today, our crucifix, will be magnetic for us. I beg you, even now, as I'm talking, don't look at me. Look up. Look at him. Keep your eyes on him this whole time. I'm entitling this, Something for Everyone. I think the Lord wants to say something to all of us, which are perhaps loosely grouped into three general categories. The first group is those of us who are here today who feel that despite how often we've heard it said, all this talk about God's passionate and extraordinary love for us is just that, talk. If that's you then please, most especially right now, look up. I received a letter the other day from a woman who lives in another state who was sexually abused when she was a child. I don't know why she wrote me. I'm guessing that she heard me talk at some point about my own experience of having gone through the same thing when I was young. So she reached out. At one point, in a very moving and long letter, she wrote this. Father, you told me God loved me. You lied. If he loved me, where was he when that was happening to me? honest question, and no easy answer. The gospel doesn't offer pious platitudes or simplistic explanations for the horrors and the traumas that you and I go through in life, things like sexual abuse and countless other things that everybody in this church in one way or another has endured. The gospel doesn't do that because God doesn't do that. Instead, God becomes flesh and doesn't simply offer us words. He offers up his life. 
God does not just tell us that he loves us. He proves it. How? The cross. But here's the problem. We wear crucifixes around our necks, hang them in our churches, put them on the walls of our homes, and generally, I think, have absolutely no idea what we're doing when we do this. Simply put, Jesus on the cross did not look like that. As Fleming Rutledge puts it, if Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. When we say that Jesus Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, it means quite specifically that he suffered the shame and the degradation that human beings have inflicted on one another and that he, above all others, had done nothing to merit. The cross was a form of advertisement, public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. Crosses weren't placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation. They were put there for maximum public exposure. Crucifixion had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly. That was its function. It was meant to indicate that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore, the mocking and the cheering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle. Crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be a spectacle. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed. And according to the gospel, the Son of God, out of love for you, chose willingly to die in this way. 
So look up at him. His love is not mere words. There is quite literally nothing left to give. The creator of the universe, God made man, is naked, totally exposed, subject to mockery, with every last drop of the fluids in his body wrung out of him. He's like a washcloth wrung out and dried up. Why? To prove his love. There's a second group I think the Lord wants to talk to. There are more than a few of us here who fear that, despite all the talk of God's great mercy, we are beyond the reach of that mercy. And so we're here today and we feel as though we can't really celebrate these days like everybody else can. We can't enter into the joy. Somehow we're disqualified. It's too late for us. We put up a good front, but deep down inside, that's what more than a few of us here right now feel. If that's you, please look up and listen. Because Scripture says, while we were yet helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. You hear that? The ungodly. God desires, Paul wrote to his friend Timothy, that all be saved, not some, not most, all. That means you and me, no matter what it is or how often you or I have done what you and I have done. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate what's called the Feast of Divine Mercy. Deeply connected to this feast is a series of revelations which Jesus gave to a a Polish religious sister named Faustina Kowalska. Listen to what he tells her. This is Jesus, not just to Faustina, but to you and me right now. That is, those of us who are here right now who are afraid that for whatever reason, we're beyond his mercy. Jesus says, my daughter, write that the greater the misery of a soul the greater its right to my mercy. So urge all souls to trust in the unfathomable abyss of my mercy because I want to save them all. Let the greatest sinners place their trust in my mercy. They have the right before others to trust in the abyss of my mercy. My daughter, write about my mercy towards tormented souls. That's more than a few of us right now. 
souls that make an appeal to my mercy, delight me. To such souls I grant even more graces than they ask. I cannot punish even the greatest sinner if he makes an appeal to my compassion. Maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe more than one. Maybe you've had an affair. Maybe more than one. Maybe you weren't abused. Maybe you did the abusing. Maybe you've never been in church in your life or here somehow for some reason for the first time in years. Know this. You are his son or his daughter. And unlike us, certainly unlike me, God loves to forgive. He is rich in mercy. Souls that make an appeal to my mercy delight me. So if that's you, please appeal to that mercy here and now. Finally, there's a third group I think the Lord wants to talk to. There are more than a few here, especially men, I think, who consider Christianity in general and Jesus in particular weak. Evil seems to have the last word to win the day and to conquer. And so we often turn as men to other places for inspiration, often at sports. Please know this. The greatest athlete of all time is not named Michael or LeBron or even Tiger. It's Jesus. And it's not even close. Unlike all of the accomplishments of athletes, which at the end of the day don't do anything at all for me or for you other than offer some wondrous entertainment and a great diversion, Jesus' death and his resurrection, they were done for you and for me, and they totally change our lives. His death was the way into death into its kingdom so as to be able to triumph over it. So please, if this is you, especially brothers, look up and listen to what Jesus says about himself and why he came. When a strong man, this is Jesus speaking, who's the strong man? This is the devil When a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, that's the world, his goods, that's you and me, are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. In other words, they, we, go free. Who's the stronger one? Who's the one who assails the devil and overcomes him? 
That would be Jesus. God became man, as I repeat over and over and over again, to go to war for us. The reason the Son of God came, Scripture tells us, was simply to destroy the works of the devil. Be sure of this, of all days today, the cross is not happening to Jesus. It's a trap. It's a sneak attack. God is luring the enemy close to him into a fight so that he can rob him of his power over us. The enemy isn't stupid. He just isn't wise. He knows he has no chance against God. So God draws the enemy to himself in a most creative and unthinkable way. Not simply by becoming man, but by going to the cross, which is the death of a slave. Die for a creature that you made? This thought would never even enter into Satan's mind. Now, despite how it appears, God is in control of everything that's happening today. This is all part of his strategy. It's his game plan. Hebrews tells us, God became man so that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Listen to how Augustine put it 1,600 years ago. The devil was conquered by his own trophy of victory. The devil jumped for joy, because remember, he hates us, when he seduced the first man, that was Adam, and cast him down to death. By seducing the first man, he slew him. By slaying the last man, that's Jesus, he lost the first from his snare. The victory of our Lord Jesus Christ came when he rose and ascended into heaven. Then was fulfilled that passage we looked at last night. The lion of the tribe of Judah has won the day. The devil jumped for joy, Augustine writes, when Christ died. But by the very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took, as it were, listen to this, the bait in the mousetrap. He rejoiced at the death, thinking himself death's commander. But the Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. Jesus' flesh, especially hanging there on the cross, that was the bait. But his divinity is the bar that comes crushing down on top of Satan's head once he's bitten it. In a few moments, we're going to come forward to venerate the cross. Attached to it, I'm going to hold this. This is the most prized possession that I have. 
I will gladly part with everything I have, save this. This is a relic of the true cross. It's a very small piece of the wood, that wood, on which Jesus went to war out of love for you and for me. The wood that makes it possible for you and me, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter how it is that you came in here this afternoon, to start all over again. If you are, or you decide today perhaps to become a disciple of Jesus, because of this wood and all that Jesus did for us on it, then death and sin and hell have no power over you. Not anymore. So let us approach the wood in wonder and in awe and with unshakable confidence in the God who proves his love, who is rich in mercy, and who is absolutely and utterly unconquerable.